Hear the word of the Lord from James 1, 5 through 11. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we ask now that in the name of your beloved Son, our Savior Jesus, that through your word and by your Holy Spirit today, you would strengthen us and build us up. Whatever the trial, whatever the challenge that these brothers and sisters face, we pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would work your promises found in your word into each heart and life in a powerful way. Grant to each one today confidence, not in themselves, but in you, as the awesome, generous, giving God who is unwavering and all-wise. We thank you, God, for all that you have so graciously done for sinners like us, through our Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous, in whose name we pray and ask all these things. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ and friends, last week we continued to go through the book of James. We just entered a new sermon series, and we are working through this wonderful little epistle, the epistle of James. The first week we mentioned that this was most likely James the Just, as he became to be known as in the early church. He was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he identifies himself as a servant of God, or a slave of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And last week we looked at verses 2 through 4, and we saw that it's not a question of if trials will come, but when they will come. Trials will come in the life of every believer, and certainly James's original first century audience Those 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad would have been facing all sorts of difficulties, economic hardship, away from home and comfort, away from what they knew and what was familiar, and certainly more than that as well that we hardly could even imagine, persecution perhaps, 
division within their families, relational strife, and more. And yet at the same time, through all of these trials, James urges his audience, and by extension all of us, to count it all joy. To count it all joy when these trials of various sorts come. Why? Because we know, we know, we know that there is a God in heaven who is at work in these trials, and the testing of our faith in these trials, it's not in vain. What is going on is actually producing something. It is refining our faith so that we would endure. And ultimately, not only is the Lord making us more holy, and not only is the Lord doing this work through every single trial, even if we can't see Him, even if circumstances don't lead us to believe that this is happening, and even if everyone around us says, God's not in this, we know that He is. And so... We were encouraged to see that the Lord directs our attention to that end result of our tested faith, the endurance of that faith, but ultimately our glorification or that day when we lack nothing and we stand perfect and complete. And so there's this future-oriented eschatological focus right here in the opening verses of James. But James continues then knowing that these Christians are not yet glorified. They are not yet at this place where they lack nothing. And so in verse 5, we come then to see another section, an invitation really from the Lord, a directive to us as to how we are to approach these trials that we go through, these various kinds of trials. If you're using uh, the sermon notes uh, today, The main kind of summary statement of these verses is there at the top, and it's simply this. Since God is who He is, ask Him as He desires. Since God is who He is, ask Him as He desires. And today, with the Lord's help, we will look at why we ask, and who we ask, and how we ask. Because these three questions are very clearly found in the text before us today that was just read. So let's take these, friends, one at a time with confidence that with the Lord's help we will be able to be those who after today in God's Word will approach Him with more confidence and more humility. First, why we ask. Why we ask. Well, in trials especially, we ask for wisdom because we lack it and God owns it. In trials, we ask for wisdom from the Lord because we lack it and God owns it owns it. In Proverbs 2, verse 6, we read in the Old Testament, the Lord gives wisdom, from His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. It is abundantly clear in Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, that the Lord is the sovereign King who owns all wisdom. He is infinitely wise, He is altogether perfect, and He, unlike us, lacks nothing, and always has and always will. And so in the midst of this trial, of whatever various kind it is, when we encounter and come across these various trials, there is a knowledge, there is a mindset that we are supposed to embrace, that we are supposed to ask the Lord for, but there's also here an action. Note what the Scriptures tell us. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
And of course, the question that is begged by that invitation is, who would be arrogant enough to say, I don't lack wisdom? Now, there's different times in our lives when we are acutely aware that we lack wisdom. Especially when we go through trials. But it seems like trials tend to pound out of us the wisdom that we once held within our minds, in our hearts. The truth concerning who God is that once filled our minds and hearts. Maybe we were on track reading the Bible every day and then that trial came and threw a lot of things off. And just seemed to pound out this good theology from our hearts and our minds. No doubt that these first century Christians, away from their home, the comfort, away from maybe that job that provided some stability, now in a divided household or maybe estranged from friends and family, no doubt that these Christians, perhaps a number of them persecuted, very much sensed a disruption, to say the least, in their spiritual walk with the Lord. And James writes to them and invites them to embrace this. Yes, you lack wisdom. And so, look to the God who owns all wisdom. So that's why we ask. It's because we lack this wisdom. Trials tend to pound that out of us. But who do we ask? Let's look next at uh, verse 5b, as it were, and see this next part of James 1.5 to look at who we are asking. Because we are asking, friends, the living God, and James gives us a wonderful description of who this living God is in James 1.5b. Look there in your Bibles. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And who is God? James describes the Lord like this. God is the one who gives to all generously and without reproach. The Lord has given us a life and breath and everything. We'll see in a few weeks, God willing, who this God is in more full detail. He's the God who gives us every good and perfect gift. You go to the Old Testament and you see that He is the Lord, the Sovereign, the Creator God, who grants us all that we have, who sustains us, the ability to breathe, live, move, have our being, for our heart to pump blood. The God who numbers our days. This is who the Lord is. And everything from an encouraging comment someone gave you at work, to the greatest blessing you can imagine, salvation found in Jesus Christ. And everything in between, perhaps a relationship that has blessed you, a friendship that has enriched your life, everything comes from this God. It's from Him. And so we look to the God who gives to all generously. The Lord Jesus, during His earthly ministry in the flesh, very clearly said that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. There are blessings that flow from God and His kind providence on those who right now have never once for a single second acknowledged Him, worshipped Him, served Him, or loved Him. 
Yet this same God is the God who gives generously to them and gave them all things. It's astounding. But in our case, we know this God. He is our Father by virtue of the fact that we are in Christ. And for those of us who have this awesome peace with God through Christ and have repented of our sins and are trusting in the Lord today, those of us who relate to God and worship God and serve God, not perfectly, but truly, And faithfully, those of us who know this God, we approach Him as our Father in heaven. We approach Him from a place of peace and confidence, knowing and appreciating far more than our friends, loved ones, and others who are dead in their sins and trespasses who this God is. It's interesting that All of our translations, Robert Plummer, the Greek New Testament scholar, notes almost all translations translate this word generously. The God who gives to all generously here. It's not wrong. It's not incorrect. It is true that God does give generously. But it is interesting to note what Robert Plummer does here. He says that it's actually interesting because the word comes from the word unwavering, single-minded, And the idea here is contrasted, as we'll see in a little bit, Lord willing, with the one who doubts the double-minded. Unlike the double-minded, who we often are. The Lord is not like that. He is unwavering. He is single-minded. And He is the God who gives. And yes, He gives generously, but don't lose sight of this, friends. The Lord, who gives in a single-minded fashion, is not wondering, maybe, maybe I'll bless you. And this God is always more willing to give than we are to ask. The truth is, friends, that one of the things we see throughout Scripture is that we are not a praying people. We are not an asking people. Don't deceive yourself in thinking that you are so humble and filled with faith that you are constantly asking the Lord for things. You're not. I'm not. We're not as good as we think we are by a long shot. We don't ask the Lord for wisdom. We try to solve things ourselves. Everyone turns to something or someone. In our day, many people go on Google. They look to some expert. They try to get out of their problems, out of their trials as fast as they can, looking for some relief. We even do this as believers sometimes. We don't ask the Lord who owns wisdom to grant us wisdom and who is eager to give and with a single-minded, unwavering devotion to our well-being, is glad to give to us. We ask the unwavering God, but that's not all. We also ask the God who will not demean us. If you're following along in the bulletin, that's uh, 2B, the God who will not demean us. Where do we get, get that from the text? We'll look in your Bible again at James 1.5. And the second part of this verse says this, Let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach. Without reproach. Your translation might say without insult. The word is literally in some of the best Greek lexicons, as again Robert Plummer helpfully notes, it means to demean, to debase someone, to belittle them. Perhaps you can relate to this, friends. When you go to someone... Or you've gone in the past to someone, a relative, maybe your boss, and asked for something. And there was this 
sense of belittling. I knew you'd come. I knew you'd ask. What do you want now? There's this begrudging sense of reluctance. A little bit of an insult when you ask and you need help. Friends, not so with God. Not so with your Creator. Not so with your King. When He gives to you, He gives with a single-minded devotion. He is the unwavering God, and He's also the God who's not going to demean you. He is pleased when His people ask. He is glad and delights when His children ask for things. There's no reproach with our God. Not at all. Not ever. The text goes on to say, and it will be given to Him. This brings us to how we ask. But before we go to this next section, I want to tell you the story of a man who endured great trials, incredible trials in his life. I was driven to this hymn earlier this week. And it is a hymn that I didn't know the history of. Sometimes I'll look into the history of hymns. I don't know if you do this sometimes. It's interesting to see how hymns were written. Wonderful uh, study just to see even how the Lord led uh, men and women of old, great saints of old, to write beautiful hymns. Well, one man in particular went through incredible trials. In fact, one author who wrote on this man said that this man's life was marked by trial after trial. One such man was Irishman Joseph Scriven. He sought to pursue a military career and trained in India to to do that, but then he had terrible health and he had to come back and failed at that. He went to Trinity College then in Dublin and met a girl, fell in love, and they were engaged and planning. The night before their wedding, though, in 1843, his fiancée accidentally drowned the night before the wedding. The next year, this young man, 25 years old, left Ireland to go to Canada. He was a part of the Plymouth Brethren tradition. And there were some missions, some work to go to do over there, work with the school. Well, after serving over there for a little while in 1855, while he was in his 30s, Joseph Scriven received word that his mother had been terribly ill. Again, he was in Ontario, Canada. She was back in Ireland. He met another girl shortly after through his employer there in Ontario, Canada and fell in love again with the niece of his employer, Eliza. And Joseph and Eliza got engaged, but shortly before their wedding, she too, his second fiancé, also died. A friend of Scriven's, a few years later, found him, quote, dejected, prostrate in mind and body, and heard his friend Joseph Scriven say, I just wish the Lord would take me home. He ended up dying, a sickly man. He was actually found drowned near where he had been staying. They don't know if it was a suicide or an accident. But earlier in Joseph Scriven's life, friends, he wrote a poem to his mother who was sick in 1855. And he titled it, Pray Without Ceasing. And he wrote it to comfort her. Thirteen years later, it was put to music and was referred to by one Canadian song historian as, beyond question, the best-known piece of Canadian literature. 
Today we know that hymn is, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Here are some of the lines from that hymn that we have sung here and that we love to sing. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Indeed and amen, friends. Praise God for this life filled with trials, but the great fruit that came out of this man who had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let that be an object lesson for all of us to know that even if we cannot see the Lord at work, even if we don't sense Him at work, the Lord, friends, is at work in your trial. He's producing something, and it won't be wasted, not any of it, not for a moment. You're not pathetic if you need help. It's actually a sign of your faith. If you cry out to God and ask Him for wisdom, and if you do it again and again and again, He is pleased, He is honored and glorified when we do that. God will never mock you or insult you for asking. And just like Luke 18 tells us, the parable that the Lord Jesus tells of that persistent widow who is knocking and knocking and beating at the judge's door for justice. And then Jesus spins that and says, finally, this persistent widow gets justice from this wicked judge. How much more will your Father in heaven give you justice and grant you what you lack? Friends, we don't approach a human being, even the best human being we know on earth, when we ask for wisdom. We approach the living God, your Creator, who is eager to give, eager to bless, and owns all wisdom. He will grant it to you. And so ask Him. Why we ask? Well, in trials we ask for wisdom because we lack it in God's the one who owns it. Who do we ask? We ask the unwavering God, who is single-minded and cannot lie. He is not like us. And we ask the God who will not demean us or insult us when we ask Him. That brings us to how we ask, the third and final point here. Well, first, of course, we ask with confidence. We ask with confidence. Verse 5 closes with this, and it will be given to him. The text tells us it will be given to him. But he must ask, verse 6, in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We ask with confidence to the God who gives, and the God who gives generously and single-mindedly. It should be clear that from this text, friends, we are not talking here about taking questions To the Lord, Lord, why would you let this happen to me? No, this is a sinful, a wicked doubt. A double-minded hesitation of thinking, maybe God created me, but maybe He didn't. Maybe He's sovereign, but maybe He's not. And you're driven to and fro, back and forth, like a wave. Douglas Moo says that the picture here is not 
of a wave mounting in height and crashing to the shore, but rather of the swell of the sea, never having the same texture and shape from the moment to moment, but rather changing in all its variations with the wind. So someone comes and gives you an idea about God, and you start to believe that. And another person comes, and you believe that about God, and on and on. And you morph, and there's no real firm biblical faith. You're not rooted in who God is. There's no sense of, yes, God is sovereign. He is good. He is the creator. He is the king. You don't have that settled confidence. You're tossed to and fro. That's the kind of person we're talking about here. And it's a rebuke of genuine faith. We can see examples in the scriptures of an honest sense of, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Like in Mark 9, 23 and 24, when the Lord Jesus comes to a man whose son throws himself in the fire. He's demon-possessed. And the man says, Jesus, if you can do something for my son, please do it. And Jesus answers in Mark 9, 23 and 24, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and he said, I do believe, help my unbelief. In that text, Jesus does not rebuke this man for crying out and saying, I believe, help my unbelief. There's no rebuke of saying, this is sinful doubting, knock it off. And Jesus proceeds to heal this young man. And so we know this was a genuine faith that this man possessed in the Lord. But we're not talking about that here in James in chapter 1. What we're talking about here is a double-minded person. Unstable, notice what the text says, in all his ways. There is no sense of, yes, God is sovereign, and here's the fruit from my life to show you that I believe God is sovereign. There is no sense of any kind of continuous obedience and faithfulness walking on the Christian path here. There is a back and forth, to and fro. The other day I was walking, and there was a leaf, and it was one of these leaves that, you know, it's just a picturesque, perfect leaf. And you just wanted to grab it because a lot of them are, you know, torn up. There's a half piece of leaf, but my kids like to, to find these leaves that are, you know, full. You know, some, and so I, I went to pick it up, and a gust of wind came and just whoosh, took it off, just like that. That's the image we have here with the person whose faith, if we could call it that, is not rooted, is not heavy. There's no weight in this person's life. And so if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I think that describes me. What should I do if I am this double-minded person? Well, the Scriptures actually invite you, and God is gracious enough to have you here today. It's not by accident to call you to repent and to say, Lord, I confess this double-mindedness. Please forgive me. And thank you for Jesus, who will gladly forgive me for even this double-minded hypocrisy. And please Purge my mind of this double-minded hypocrisy and grant to me a faith that is lasting, a faith that is sustainable over time, a faith that is not double-minded but is more like yours, like your unwavering, single-minded willingness to give. As Christians, we are those, again, friends, who are not perfect like God. 
One day the Lord will glorify us. He will give us resurrected and glorified bodies. We will think the thoughts of God after him. But we're not there yet. Now, more and more, with the help of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, the Lord is setting us apart. He is sanctifying us and making us more and more holy. He's giving us faith that we lack, wisdom that we lack. And friends, know this. Hebrews 6.18 tells us, It is impossible for God to lie. So if He says He's going to grant you wisdom in your trial, whatever it may be, He will grant you wisdom. And He wants you to ask, and He wants me to ask. The New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg says of faith here, quote, Faith refers to continuing confidence in the identity and nature of God. James does not demand that a believer never question what God gives them, lest their faith prove null and void. Rather, given the context, he maintains that he should not doubt the character of God as the one who gives unflinchingly. Don't doubt that God will give you what you lack. And He will give you wisdom. Because when you look at all that you have, it is from the Lord. And when you look at the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is undeniable that this God has granted you not just everything that is a blessing in your life, but the greatest things that are blessings here and forevermore. And so how do we ask? We ask with confidence in the God who gives. But then notice that there's a shift in verse 9. It says this, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. No doubt one of the trials that these first century believers endured was poverty. An extreme poverty, unlike anything we certainly probably have ever seen. And so James says, addressing these humble circumstance individuals, That those brothers, those church members of humble circumstances are to ask with great exultation in the Lord. Great exultation in the Lord. Notice what the text says there in verse 9. He is to glory in his high position. Your translation might say he is to boast in his high position. The idea here is that even in your poverty, you can approach the Lord with confidence knowing that you have access to this God, knowing that at the end of the day, in the schema of the kingdom of God, just as the Lord Jesus said, the first will be last and the last will be first. The values of the kingdom of God, friends, are not the values of this present evil age. And so, if lowly, if in poverty even extreme poverty, a brother, a brother who knows the Lord and is trusting in Him, or a sister who knows the Lord and is trusting in the Lord, can ask the Lord and should ask the Lord with a great exultation, knowing that I am privileged even in my poverty. John Calvin once said that there is no condition a Christian can find himself or herself in where his or her joy is ultimately robbed. It is impossible, friends, for your joy in the Lord to be taken from you, no matter the circumstance or the trial. And so if we are lowly, no matter how lowly we are in, we can go before the Lord and glory in this low position, knowing that not only did the Lord Jesus Christ also embrace this low position, 
But the Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior who is going to rescue us from this low position and ultimately glorify us one day forevermore. We also ask, though, if we are rich, and by the way, all of you, myself, we are all rich. Don't think, oh, I'm not in that category. This is the wealthiest nation the world has ever seen, bar none. It's not close. If you are the most poor person today, you've experienced rare delicacies that kings and queens of old could only imagine in their wildest imaginations. Just know that. So you are rich. You are rich. I'm not saying you can never be lowly, but certainly you and I have been rich. And it is talking here about material wealth, by the way. If rich, how should we ask the Lord? Well, this is really important, friends, because we see all throughout Scripture a war that goes on, a warning between those who serve mammon or those who serve the Lord. The Apostle Paul says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When we looked at Proverbs a few weeks back, we gave warnings concerning wealth. Why? Because the Scriptures again and again tell us you cannot serve mammon, you cannot serve possessions in God. There are great risks with great wealth. It's not a sin to be wealthy, but it quickly becomes an idol if you're not very careful. And so if you're rich, yes, in humility, we ask the Lord for wisdom. We ask the Lord for what we lack in trials. But we do this with an eye on the grave. And here is a reference to Isaiah. And Isaiah 40 mentions that grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The things that we see that catch our eye in this world, the glamour, the glitz, the wealth that a person has or possesses, as they continue to accumulate more and more of it, as we continue to accumulate more and more of it, James says, in that pursuit, their end is near. They will be done. And so if we are wealthy, we must recognize that we have to, with great humility, consider ourselves impoverished. And those who cannot buy our way to heaven could never do that. And if we know the Lord, by His grace, we recognize it's not because we are rich or wealthy or have possessions that we know the Lord. It's because of God's grace and God's grace alone. And we live our lives knowing that this stuff, these things I have, It is ultimately the Lord's, and I am stewarding it for a season. And so if we are rich in humility with an eye on the grave, that is what we recognize. Look in your Bible there at verse 10. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. And its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Friends, we approach a God who is worthy of us asking Him for wisdom. And because we approach a God who is worthy to be asked, we must be those who recognize that our God, unlike any other God, is the unwavering, giving, never demeaning God of all wisdom. And so ask Him as he desires, and do so unto his glory, especially through your trials. Let's pray. Almighty God and merciful Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you and praise you for your word and the wisdom found therein. 
I pray for these friends, God, and ask that you would increase their faith and hope in Jesus. I pray that as they go through trials of various kinds and encounter these trials, that they would take it all joy and have that mindset that you call them to. I pray, God, for them as well, that they would not be afraid to ask and not doubt your character, not be hesitant and double-minded. God, purge double-mindedness from this church. We want to be those who are more like you, Lord, single-minded. And we thank you for being an unwavering God, the God who owns all wisdom, who will grant us wisdom and strengthen our minds, even if we lack that mindset through trials. God, thank you that you are producing something in us and that you are the God who will never leave us, never forsake us, and the God who has equipped us and granted to us all we need for life, godliness, both here and into all eternity. We pray this in the precious and powerful name of King Jesus, our rescue and redeemer and sovereign king. And all God's people said, amen.